This was recorded live at Trinity Church in San Juan, Puerto Rico. For more information, go to trinitypr.org. Good morning, Trinity Church. My name is Zach Lutz. I'm pastor here. So happy to be with you all. We're going to be exploring today generosity. Um, a couple times of year, it kind of seems between maybe the church calendar, so Lent and, and Advent, if you know, like Easter service and, and Christmas time, um, we like to kind of uh, take these opportunities for maybe uh, special sermon series, special focuses. Uh, and we've done these on a variety of things. Um, we do them on money. Um, we've done them on family and marriage. Uh, and so for today, actually, we're going to be focusing on generosity. It will touch some on how we use our money, um, but ultimately my goal for today is to get us to explore how generous God is with us and what that generosity does to us. What kind of a people does God's generosity create? You guys have all heard of Ebenezer Scrooge, right? Now, I don't think I've actually read A Christmas Carol, and I'm sure many of you have, and you're much more educated than I am. Um, but I have seen enough of movies and cartoons that borrow those themes that you know what Scrooge is. Charles Dickens describes him this way, a squeezing, wrenching, grasping, scraping, clutching, covetous old sinner, hard and sharp as flint, secret and self-contained, and solitary as an oyster. Ebenezer Scrooge is the opposite of generous. One of the questions I've received most often in my ministry, and that precedes my time here in Puerto Rico, um, but I've also definitely been asked it for my, the time that I've been here, uh, is what does God want me to do with my money? You guys, like, you've all kind of felt that, right? Like, what, what, what am I supposed to do? I read some of these commands in Scripture, and some of them I'm kind of like, sell all of your possessions and give to the poor. Like, where, where do I fit in with this? How, what am I supposed to do? What is God asking me to do? Becomes even tougher when we recognize, as we all sort of do, that um, we exist in the economy of, of one of the wealthiest economies in the world. And so we've all heard the statistics and all heard the news that, like, we are like the wealthiest people that have lived in all time. Um, we have access to clean water, clean food. We're usually able to pay other people to do work for us, to make food for us. And we're able to spend money on things that w wouldn't be considered absolutely necessary. We get to spend money on things that are beyond a little bit of what we might say subsistence living. And so we have this deep question about what generosity looks like. It seems that it's very important to God. So again, applying this to each and every one of our lives uh, requires a little bit more individual direction than I'm able to do up here. So my goal, instead of looking for those principles that are just one-off, this is exactly what you should give to here, here, and here, is to give you a vision of what the Bible says a generous people look like. People who are generous look like this. And here's what we're going to see. <clears throat> Today we're going to see that because of God's great generosity, we become a people who rest, who work, and who worship. 
So primarily, that's what we're going to see. And for you note takers, those are going to be our three points. We are a people who rest, who work, and who worship. And we're going to be seeing this in three different passages in Luke. So if you would, please stand for the reading of God's Word. They're going to come from Luke 12, Luke 16, and Luke 20. Starting in Luke 12, verse 32. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Moving to Luke chapter 16, starting in verse 13. No servant can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard these things, and they ridiculed him. And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. Moving to Luke 20, starting in verse 22. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? But he perceived their craftiness and said to them, Show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? They said, Caesar's. He said to them, Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. This ends the reading of God's word. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. May he bless it for you and for me. Please be seated. So I've mentioned that we're looking at generosity, and we're primarily going to learn how we should be as a people by seeing God's unbelievable generosity. So the first thing that we see is because of God's unbelievable generosity, we can rest. Now, the first question might be, have you ever seen unbelievable generosity? This is a super small example. Maybe it's not as unbelievable as we like, but it's recent, so I like it. Um, About four, uh, maybe almost five weeks ago in Colorado, uh, a family at the Great Wolf Lodge in in Colorado, which is kind of a resort, left a $5,000 tip on a $55 bill. $5,000 tip on a $55 bill. It's unbelievably generous. I mean, I think we could imagine working a waiter's wage in Colorado, expecting your 10 to 20%, having the worries and pressures of making the bill payments or going to school or providing for your family or whatever you need to do from working that job. And somebody comes in, they said, hey, don't, don't worry about that for now. You would laugh at them. It's like, don't, don't, don't worry about this thing over here that consumes your life. You'd be like, it's nice that you don't have to worry about that, but I do. Now, if you were a good waiter or waitress, you'd you, you know, probably respond kinder than that. Um, but it would be weird to have someone say that to you. Don't worry about these things. Jesus' audience that he's speaking to in Luke chapter 12 were a majority subsistence living. They're living paycheck to paycheck. They don't have huge storehouses. They're getting through the next crop. They're getting through the next month. They're getting through the next season of time for whatever that is. 
Because the wealthy, the truly wealthy, weren't exactly following Jesus around, generally speaking. Maybe the tax collectors, but they might be what we consider middle class in our day and age. The truly wealthy would have been the Roman elite or uh, Herod's house, the rulers of Jerusalem, right? These would have been the truly wealthy. They're not exactly following Jesus around. They hear about him from the other people, but, but they're not there, right? So these people are subsistence living paycheck to paycheck, and Jesus comes up to them in Luke chapter 12, and he says, fear not. Now, if you were to go back right before what we read in chapter 12, Jesus tells this parable that you might remember about how the lilies are so finely dressed. Not even Solomon was dressed as these lilies. Why do you worry about the clothes you're going to wear? You see these ravens? They don't worry about their food, and yet God feeds them. Doesn't God care much more about you? And then he gets, so you hear that, and you're like, yeah, okay, yeah, God does care about me. Why, why should I not worry? And he still says, fear not. Don't worry about those things. But why? For it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Jesus says the reason that we don't worry about these things is because it is God's good pleasure to give us the kingdom. Now, I don't know how you normally imagine God's kingdom. Maybe you imagine heaven and clouds and gold paved streets. Um, surely we all have it wrong, even if I were to give you a description up here of what God's kingdom looks like. But I'll say it this way. God's kingdom consists of whatever God rules over. What does God rule over? Everything right? Jesus rules over everything. When Jesus looked at those people and he said, it is God's good pleasure to give you the kingdom, he was looking at them and saying, God has a kingdom bigger than you could possibly imagine. Like, we can't even really conceptualize the Milky Way, and God's kingdom is bigger than that. And what he says is he looks at you and he says, I have the place just for you. I have just what I've made you for, and it is my good pleasure to give it to you. Jesus follows this up by saying, that's where your treasure should be. The reason you don't lay awake at night and worry is because you're, you know that your treasure is safe. This kingdom that he's promised you is in the hands of a father who delights to give it to you. He isn't begrudgingly withholding it, waiting for you to do the right checkbox, uh, check the right boxes so that he can just be like, okay, fine, you've earned this little piece. He says, no, I have a kingdom for you. My people will inhabit a kingdom and everyone has a place. Everyone will have a room. And it will be exactly what you were made for. Jesus says that if your treasure is on earthly things, that you would be very right to worry. Because thieves do break in and steal. There are moths, moths that destroy. There are market downturns. There are crumbling of countries and laws. There are natural disasters. If your treasure is here, you will worry. If your treasure is in God's providence for you, you will rest. What Jesus is asking them to do 
in order to reaffirm, because it's not that their problems necessarily go away, right? It's not that they're still not trying to find food to put on their tables. But it's that they rest in God's providence in a particular way, and they do that by going back to the scriptures and seeing God's providence for his people in the past. They look back in their own lives, and they remember those times that God has provided for them, and they hear from others in their midst, their brothers and sisters, and they hear about how God has provided for them. And then we also see that providence through that community. We see God provide in miraculous ways. And so we rest in his providence. First thing that we see is because of God's unbelievable generosity with us, we should be able to rest. The next thing that we're going to see is because of God's unbelievable generosity, we can work. We should work. We all work for someone, right? I mean, even CEOs and owners work for the board or their stockholders. Even people who are self-employed work at the whims of the market, consumers, and demands. Politicians work for constituents. Pastors, in some sense, work for their congregations. It doesn't mean that we all answer to these people in the same way or degree, but we all work for somebody. One way that we often miss, though, is how we work in our families. It's hard working for our families. I think what makes working for our families hard is that it's hard to find justification that the work that we're doing is worthwhile. Here's what I mean. Most of our jobs, right, have compensation for them. And so we say, this work is worth doing because of the paycheck that I receive. Now, hopefully I like enjoy aspects of it too, but ultimately the reason that I know that it is justified is because it is helping support me. I'm justified because of this thing. Margarita, this last Tuesday, Margarita's my wife, for those of you that don't know, this last Tuesday cleaned the entire house. I do have permission to tell this story, too, because it's going to sound like I don't, but I do have permission, just just so you know. Like bathrooms, kitchens, bedrooms, the house was spotless, and she couldn't wait till I got home because me, being the cleaner freak of us both, she knew that I would notice. And she wanted that justification to be like, wow, the house is so clean. I got home, I had other things on my mind, I don't remember what was going on. As the night drags on, she finds herself becoming more and more frustrated because her work had not been validated. Her work had not been seen, her work was not justified. We desperately want our work to be meaningful. The Pharisees thought that the increase of money would mean God's favor. So in Luke 16, it can say in verse 14, the Pharisees were lovers who were lovers of money heard all these things and they ridiculed Jesus. Jesus responded to them and said, you are those who justify yourselves before men. You draw these connections between compensation and the value of work, and you assume that God looks at it the same way that you do. Jesus ultimately says, the few verses before, you serve a master. And Jesus says that you cannot serve two. You cannot serve God and money. The reality of it is, I think that we think that God thinks that 
whatever work that we do is relatively meaningless. Like, it's just a way to spend a third of our lives. Like, we just kind of look at it like, I don't know, God's not really involved in my work, but he does care what I do with my money. We subtly believe that God has us just wasting our time here until we can finally get to heaven and worship him there and finally be doing what he made us to do, which was just to worship all day. But the reality of it is, is that Jesus says, you were actually made to serve him in absolutely everything that you do, and that includes your work. Did you know that work is good? It's broken and twisted by sin, sure. But work is good. Have you ever been without work? John Steinbeck could write this in The Grapes of Wrath, that man without work was muscles aching to work, minds aching to create. God absolutely made us to worship him. And one of the ways that we worship him is in our work. You might argue that it is a primary way that we worship him. We spend fully like one-third of our adult lives more or less working. Problem is that we look at work as only what it has to offer, money, prestige, honor. We look at these things as what justifies it, but not as the opportunity to serve God. God has determined that worship of him in response to this unbelievable generosity actually changes the way that we work in the world. Like it changes the way that we rested in the world, right? We don't rest because we have enough stored up. We rest because God is going to provide for us. And we work not because of what it earns us, but because God has gifted us with particular things to do in the world and they are worth doing. Now, application, again, in like specific ways, gets very difficult. So if I could just say it this way. Try to answer this question for your work. What does it mean for you to do your work Christianly? Not just what does it look like to do Christian things at work, but what does it look like to do your work Christianly? What does it look like to not just do Christian things as a father, but be a Christian father? Be a Christian mother. Be a Christian son and daughter. Be a Christian employer. Be a Christian employee. Not just doing Christian things, but fundamentally marked by God's generosity. God's generosity changes us. We rest because God provides. We work because God justifies our work in and of itself. We serve him, not whatever boss we have, even if that boss is ourselves. But there's one more way that God commands us um, to respond to his generosity. So because God is unbelievably generous, we rest, we work, and we also worship. This story in Luke 20 is the Pharisees' attempt to catch Jesus about whether or not it is lawful, theologically speaking, to pay taxes. The Pharisees didn't much like the taxes that they were paying. 
because they thought that all of our work should actually go back to God. So they're trying to catch him in this in-between. Like, are you going to betray Caesar or are you going to betray God? Jesus notices the deceitfulness of their hearts, their craftiness, as it says in the text, and asked to see a denarius, which would have been about a day's labor worth of money, so a couple hundred dollars worth, right, on this coin. And he asked them, whose image is on this coin? Now, the idea of image, likeness, or inscription, for the Pharisees, when Jesus is talking to them, this is theologically charged language. Why? Because image Likeness in inscription language is how God described creating humanity. Whose image was humanity made in? God's image. It has God's likeness, God's inscription. So the Pharisees answer this question, and they're like, well, this is Caesar's image, because it would have, in fact, been Caesar's. Now, another interesting thing about this is you have to think about how important it was for a king to have images of himself around. You see, um, when they conquered a city or took it over, they put up statues of the king who ruled that area. So even though Caesar may have been somewhere else, there would have been statues of Caesar in every city that he would have been in charge of. So that if you were traveling through, you actually would have realized like how you would have known that you would have left, in some sense, one person's dominion into another would have been by the statues that you see the images of that ruler that you see around. Now, in Jesus' day, they still did this, but they also did it another way that we actually more intimately understand, and it's by stamping the money. What currency do you use here? Oh, you use a denarius of Caesar? Now I must change my money and conform to the economic standards of this king. Jesus answers the Pharisees, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and God the things that are God's. And what he did there was say, this is chump change compared to you. God already owns this anyway. Caesar's rise and fall, I mean, history has proven that out. He's not going to be here for forever. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. God doesn't rise or fall. God is. And you bear his image. God isn't content with just your rest and your work. He wants all of you. See, the Pharisees' idea was that if Jesus was really king of kings and lord of lords, then he should want his face over all the money. That's how he would take control and take back the kingdom. And Jesus says, oh, I am king of kings and lord of lords, but I'm actually here to rescue something much more important. So if we could say that we like fully sleep or rest one-third of our lives, you know, we've already talked about that rest piece. We already work for one-third of our lives. Worship isn't exactly one-third of our lives. It's actually the whole thing. But it includes this other third as well as everything else. God says, I've rescued you to do what you were made to do and worship me in your rest, in your work, in absolutely everything else. There isn't one-third or one-one-hundredth of your life that escapes it. God has shown us unbelievable generosity, and he says, you are mine. Thinking about your liquid capital 
as far as what you're going to get, give back to God is far too small. God wants you, and he wants all of you. Now, I would like to get to maybe some concrete areas uh, as, as much as I can. Uh, and so for these, I'm just going to kind of go through as far as just general applications from the kind of people that we become when we've experienced God's generosity and we rest and work and worship in relation to that generosity. The first we've just touched on, which is that thinking about giving your liquid capital back to God, whatever you've earned that's just like, this is the easiest thing, give, I'll give this 10%, is too small. When God commands you to be generous with your life, he's commanding you to be generous with all of your life. Are you generous with your property, with your wisdom and knowledge? Are you generous with your family, with your possessions? Are you generous with forgiveness? Are you generous with mercy? Generosity marks all of who you are, not just how much money you give away. Now, how do you become a more generous person? Well, it's interesting, in Luke 12, you know, Jesus is saying there, you know, your treasure is in heaven, and so you don't really count your, your earthly treasure as meaning much. Um, and so he says, because you've experienced this unbelievable generosity from God and he wants to give you the kingdom, your response is giving. <laughs> Sell your possessions and give to the poor. How do you become a more generous person? You actually have to practice generosity. <laughs> I mean, it, sound, it's, it sounds uh, overly simple, and I'm not trying to, like, talk down to you. It's just, it's a hard thing to do, right? Like, it's hard to be generous. It's hard to give it away. But how are you going to be more assured of God's providence for you is actually by letting go of those idols in your heart that you hold on to, that earthly treasure that you're holding on to, white-knuckling with fear that it's going to be taken away by robbers, letting some of it go. The next thing is that, is that giving is an act of worship. So God commands us to worship him with all of his life, but giving in particular is an act of worship. And if you think about what worship is, it is both spontaneous and regular. Like there are some times that worship just spills out of things. When you see a sunset over the ocean, or you uh, drive on the highway over here and you like come up and you can see uh, El Junque, right? You're just like, wow. This is amazing. God made that. You know, it just like flows out of you. It's spontaneous. But often worship looks very regular like it does, I don't know, right now. Regular people in a regular room at 9 a.m. every Sunday morning. Your giving should follow some of those patterns. It should be spontaneous and overflow randomly. There should be, um, don't get me wrong, it's not unwise things. It's not like you're just like, you know, handing money out. But, but things that you see and they captivate you and you say, this is good. God has drawn my heart to this thing. I'm investing in this thing. And then there's also the regular weekly giving. The regular practice of letting go. Finally, I would just like to re-emphasize this piece about work. 
when we ask, how much is God asking me to give? How generous does God want me to be? How do I give until it hurts? Well, the answer is you're going to give all of yourself to him. That's what he's called you to do. But there's a particular way that he's made you to do that. What it doesn't necessarily mean is liquidating all of your assets and giving everything to someone else for them to handle how to be generous. God actually wants you to learn how to be generous. It's not just giving away the liquid capital. It's actually building a relationship with people where your gifts meet with people's needs. And one of the primary ways that we do that is the work that God has called us to do in our families and in our jobs. God has made you to be an ambassador of his kingdom, an agent of profound change, not because you have $10 million, though you might, and not because you have 10 million followers, though you might. You are a profound agent of change because God is on a mission, and he said, I've made you for this purpose. Walk this path. Do it faithfully. When you fail, come to me. Be formed more and more into Christ's likeness and do what I've made you to do Christianly. God's unbelievable generosity is plainly seen. And I'm just going to do this throughout all of Scripture. You ready? God didn't have to create us. And he did. And it was good. And when we sinned and we, we broke it and we messed it up, he actually came towards us, provided ways for us to have a relationship with him. That is generosity. But he didn't just leave us there. He said, I'm going to send you a redeemer that is going to rescue you from this situation. And it's going to cost me greatly. It's unbelievable generosity. And then once he's restored all things, he doesn't look back at our track record and say, you're untrustworthy. He says, I'm going to give you this thing, but now you won't be able to fail. This kingdom is yours. No one can come in and steal it. God says, I give you the best of what I have to offer. I share myself with you. And because we've experienced this sort of unbelievable generosity, we are transformed. Our treasure isn't here so we can rest. Our justification isn't here so we work joyfully unto the Lord. And finally, our image bearing is restored so we worship God in absolutely everything that we do.